Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, everyone. This is Rosemary Coates in Silicon Valley. I'm your host for this edition of Women in Manufacturing. I'm the executive director of the Reshoring Institute, where we help companies bring back or expand their manufacturing in the U.S. I also run a global supply chain consulting firm called Blue Silk Consulting, where we help clients with global supply chain consulting projects and where I also do expert witness work. Today, I'm really, really excited to welcome my special guest, Laura Ciceri, the founder of Supply Chain Insights. And she's a thought leader and a strategist and a consultant working with supply chain leaders to take their teams to higher levels. So welcome, Laura. Well, thanks. And Rosemary, I don't consider myself a consultant because consultants know the answers and I'm a researcher, so I'm trying to help people with the right questions. So it's just a little bit of a different slant on the world. I do quantitative research and qualitative interviews and try to help people to understand how they can use new technologies. Okay, that's terrific. Well, let's start off talking a little bit about your background and how you came to be helping supply chain executives. So I graduated in chemical engineering, and because this is a women in manufacturing, I'll tell you a little bit of the inside there. I was one of two females in my class, and I remember that one time I got a D in dynamics, and the professor held up my paper and said, this is why women shouldn't be engineers. (laughs) But I had a co-op assignment with Procter & Gamble, and the plant manager, who was a wonderful guy by the name of Bob Marsden's like, that's why you need to persevere, Laura, because we need women engineers. So I had a wonderful co-op experience in Procter & Gamble making Pringles potato chips. My first assignment was looking at the standard deviation of Pringles going into the cans so we could minimize breakage and how we could fine-tune the fryers. And then I worked for Procter & Gamble in R&D, taking products to market, new product startups. And then I went to work for a company called General Foods, which got acquired by Kraft. And I managed a large portion of the factory making things like stovetop stuffing and baker's chocolate and log cabin syrup and jello and dream whip. Great experience, 27 acres under one roof, a brand maintenance department, started up a cogeneration factory. And then Went to the Wharton School of Business and got an MBA and went to Clorox and ran distribution for Clorox in the Southeast. And that was my first experience running distribution. And that's back when we first got warehouse management and early transportation. And so I was on some leading edge projects there. And then I went to the West Coast and started up Dreyer's Grand Ice Cream and the West Coast in Arizona. Ben and Jerry's was also made by Dreyer's. And we worked on scan through for the stores and a lot of innovative products on how we could use sell-through data to basically improve factory scheduling. And then I went and worked for software companies. So I worked for a company called Manugistics, working on what should planning look like from a user side. And then I went to the Gartner Group and worked for Gartner for a couple of years and Found out Gartner wasn't as serious about supply chain as I wanted to be. So I went to work for a company called AMR Research and ran the research teams for AMR. And then AMR was sold to Gartner. And I'm like, been there, done that. And so I started my firm. Okay. 
Uh, with that considerable career, then this ought to be an interesting conversation with all your experience. You write a very interesting blog called Supply Chain Shaman, and it's about all sorts of supply chain topics. And one of the recent blogs that I wrote was about the current state of global supply chains and chaos. What are your thoughts about the mess we're in? Well, I think that we're going to be tangled for a long time. I wouldn't necessarily call it a mess. I think it's a learning opportunity. The global supply chain was built on three assumptions. One, that variability would be low, and it isn't. So our systems and our processes assume low variability. And so things like lead time and changeovers and conversion rates have become more variable. Second was that governments would be rational, and we're seeing a high level of change in that area from anything from what we see in Russia right now to China not sharing the AIS signals to you know what's happened in policy and trade. And then the other assumption was that logistics would be always available, that we would just negotiate price, and that our systems are really set up to only look at manufacturing as a constraint, not to really look at procurement and logistics as a constraint. And so as we enter this new era, I think we have to rethink those assumptions and redefine our processes and technologies. The great news is great technology capabilities and innovators out there. Bad news is that most manufacturers have become far more conservative and accepting and testing and working with technologists. You know, in the 2003 period, I had a bell curve of innovators and late adopters, and now I've only got 4% innovators. And so we've become a lot more conservative and a lot less willing to try and test our own paradigms, despite the crack in those base assumptions in global supply chains. How are we ever going to get out of this, get it straightened out and get people back on the right path? I think one of the things you also identified that I've seen as well is a maturing or a sophistication of people in supply chain that used to be totally focused on execution. You know, get those boxes off the dock, right? Today's environment, it's much more sophisticated in terms of thinking globally about the global supply chain. But we're in this weird transition period and one where it feels chaotic to me. And I think, you know, it's going to be 12 to 18 months before we kind of get back on a path again. We're, we're all over the place. What do you think? Well, I think we're going to learn from failure. As more and more companies go to the mic and talk about their Q1, Q2 earnings and their misses, I think there's going to be repercussions and waves that go through the organization that say, well, what we're doing doesn't work very well. And a large part of this, I think, is the executive committees learning the supply chain just can't be managed by cost. The supply chains can't be designed on Excel spreadsheets and that inventory is an important buffer. And one of the top five issues in supply chain management is the understanding by the executive team of the supply chain as a complex nonlinear system. Back when we had regional supply chains, we could have efficient functional silos and that would create an effective supply chain. But as we've become global and the organizations have become more complex with regions and divisions and different processes, 
it's extremely important that we manage the supply chain off of a balanced scorecard. We take manufacturing from a focus on functional costs to really look at margin and to be able to look at how do all of the functions work together around margin. Because unfortunately, we've played this kind of shell game where we think we're shaping demand, but we're actually shifting demand, which increases manufacturing and distribution costs and often gives us low satisfaction rates at customer service. And so that more holistic thinking, I think, will come out of the failure that we're going to see in the next couple of quarters. Absolutely agree. There's no question about it. I mean, that integration of of the functional areas and the maturing of supply chain thought has really changed the game. And then, of course, the pandemic introduced risk in a way that we never considered before. So it wasn't that risk wasn't out there in the past, just that we were so focused on dollars and margins and profit and loss and so forth. But now that we've identified risk, it's really a significant change in the way we think about our our global operations. What I find so interesting about your writings and your work is these ideas of broad integration of supply chain functions. I just don't see this very often. I mean, people write about individual issues or what's happening in the current time, but understanding the broader integration and the way you talk about it is just so breakthrough thinking, I think. Oh, well, thank um, you. Well, you know, and, you know, supply chain is a very young area. I was defined in 1982 as source, make, and deliver working together. And, you know, I'm a little bit religious about this, so just bear with me, because I really fought hard in my own little environment that we would have a supply chain group that would start with the customer's customer to the supplier's supplier. And I teach classes, and one of the things I do is I have people draw a supply chain, and they hate me for it. So the first day, you know, they got this white sheet of paper, and they got these crayons, and they look at me like, really, Laura, we're going to draw the supply chain. But it helps me to see their mental model. And of 150 companies that I've asked to draw their supply chain, only one put a customer on the sheet of paper. And the issue is that People see the supply chain in either smokestacks or trucks or boxes, but they don't really think about customers, customers, and outside-in processes. And I think that we have done ourselves a disservice by, over the last two decades, making the term supply chain as a more closed concept of a function within other functions. And What has happened through the pervasiveness of ERP deployments is we have tried to make all functions very efficient, but we have made them ineffective. And one of the best examples of this is procurement, which, you know, is really looking at purchase price variants or looking at, you know, am I holding those receivables at the right period and am I, you know, elongating payables? But only 30% have supplier development organizations, only 42% know where their second tier suppliers are. And the concepts around aggregate buying strategies and the translation of planned orders into aggregate buying strategies has really been lost. And we've not really automated direct materials and procurement to really get at constraints. And the same thing with transportation, You know, we do these RFPs on the lowest cost of transportation, but we don't have a feasible plan so that when the truckers don't pick up the orders in the first day, 
there's nothing that holds them accountable. You know, they agreed on price, but they didn't agree on volume. And so, you know, we're really to blame, I think, for this mess and that we have brought with us the definition of supply chain from our days as regional managers, not really thinking about the intricacies of the global supply chain. We're talking about a whole new level in supply chain management that we haven't seen before. To me, it seems like it's a maturing and an integration of strategy and execution. But, you know, I think that happens at the bigger companies where they have lots of resources and both strategists as well as execution people. Are these ideas that can be applied across the board to other companies that aren't, you know, Procter & Gamble? I mean, smaller companies that need to move to the next level of maturity in their supply chain. Is it possible to do it? Well, I actually see the world differently. So let me give you my perspective. I think that when you have a medium-sized company that has a leader who appreciates the intricacy of supply chain and the importance to the strategy, that things happen quickly. So let's take Sleep Number or let's take Johnsonville Sausage. They're not the 5 billion large companies, but they've got great leaders. You know, Johnsonville Sausage says you either sell it or you smell it. So let's really get into making the best sausages in the world. And there's great alignment in those teams and there's good strategy. Or Sleep Number that says we're not selling beds, we're selling sleep. And we're going to do white glove delivery all the way to the home. And we're going to constantly innovate to do that. I think the companies that are smaller and understand the role of supply chain in the strategy have a better chance of success. You know, AbbVie is an example in the pharmaceutical. But the large companies, I think, are so iconoclastic and functional and stuck in their ways. So, you know, Procter & Gamble has gone backwards, not forwards. You know, Colgate, the same thing. All of the companies we used to think of as leaders have receded in their ability to deliver on the basics of margin and customer service and inventory. I find that too. So a lot of the clients that I work with that are in the middle market are the ones that take the bigger leaps, but it's a learning curve for sure. And oftentimes companies, whether they're big or small or medium, don't have the strategic thinking and it needs to be developed. And because we are so traditionally steeped in thinking about execution when we talk about supply chain, it's, you know, how do I get those boxes moving? Not thinking about the world, taking a step back and thinking about the world. So this integration of thought is one of the things I find so interesting about your writings also, as I mentioned before, you had a recent publication, an article on SNOP. And I think that's the perfect example of how we need to integrate our supply chain thought. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why you think it's not effective right now and we're building inventories instead of being effective? But let's start off with if you can describe for the audience, because everybody may not know what SNOP is, and then tell us what you think about it. That's a great question. So lots of people use the term sales and operations planning, but it has as many definitions as ice cream in an ice cream shop, right? The only thing in common is that, you know, they have some base ingredients. 
But sales and operations planning, I think, is the process for driving alignment to strategy outside of lead time. So you start with what is your lead time and how many supply chains do you have? And typically, companies have seven to nine supply chains based upon the rhythms and cycles of the supply chain. And outside of lead time is really looking at your conversion times of, you know, how long does it take you to take inputs and turn them into an output and be able to ship it? And those lead times will vary by supply chain. And supply chains need to be designed. So only 9% of companies actively design the flows of those supply chains, which that's really one of the things I'm on a soapbox about is, you know, we have to design supply chains. But let's go back to SNOP. So in the best world, S is how do we go to market? How do we manage commercial teams? It isn't sales, like the sales department. It's how do we go to market? And operations is how do we actually plan and execute across manufacturing, procurement, and logistics, not just the make function. And in the best sales and operations planning, where people come up with playbooks based upon variability, the focus is on the ampersand, not on S and not an OP, but it is what if analysis, it's understanding variability, it's doing playbooks, and it's looking at the trade-offs between margin and cost and volume. Now, that is really hard for a lot of people to be able to get to because they struggle with data, they struggle with functional metrics, and they struggle with trying to be into the execution area of the shipment period, not necessarily the lead time period. And so, you know, I've done a lot of writing over the last two decades about SNOP. And one of the recent issues is this concept called IBP, where we're going to tightly integrate the budget into SNOP. And that's actually set us backwards because the role of the budget and the role of the forecast perplexes a lot of people, but the budget should be an input into the sales and operations planning process, not a constraint. And we need to be looking at market data, the drivers of what we're selling. And so it could be housing starts, it could be consumption patterns, it could be COVID rates, perhaps it's COVID and sewage. You know, but whatever the drivers of the market are is where we should really align on SNOP outside in, not necessarily constrained to the budget. And so one of the issues that we've recently had in the last decade is we've become more functional and less clear on the role of the forecast and the role of the budget. And so people that talk to me about one number forecasting, I just laugh. I'm like, you don't understand the whole process because a forecast has many numbers. So we agree on a plan and we agree on error and we use error and the design of the supply chain for the buffer and the manufacturing strategy because that is part of variability. And so I find that many people have gone off on this journey on sales and operations planning in the wrong way. And over the last decade, you know, we've added 32 days of inventory, much higher than when 2007, because we're really not good at thinking about the design, the flows, variability, how do we align, and how do we manage these plans that can help us market to market. Sales and operations planning and execution is when the the various departments get together 
and map out a plan of what's to be produced, right? And it's based on what the forecast as well as what they think they could sell to the market, what the capacity is in the production side, if there are financial constraints, you know, so these are all things taken into consideration in order to produce a plan of what you're actually going to make. That integration, the cause and effect uh, relationships, I think is so important for supply chain people to understand. And it's not just about moving boxes around the world. You have to have an active seat at the table in order to assist the company in its overall roadmap. I guess I and I think Rosemary, you said something that's really important that a lot of people have forgot is this world of constraints. And most people are really working on an infeasible plan because they can't model the manufacturing constraints or the procurement constraints or the logistics constraints and you know financial constraints in terms of capital. And so that building of a feasible plan to model the constraints is where I see that we've actually gone back and regressed in the last decade. Yeah. Well, I think there's also a shifting in leadership as well. I mean, it used to be that the financial guys controlled everything. Today's environment, you see supply chain people being integrated and in some cases lead. So supply chain leads instead of finance or sales And it creates a different perspective. You're looking at the whole process with a different angle and a different idea. Wow! I wish there was better partnership there. I actually see that finance is dictating, particularly in Europe. That's one of the things as people listen, is how do they get that partnership between finance and supply chain to be at the right level? Right. These are big challenges. I have a I have a friend who always says what seems impossible is merely difficult. And I know you also write about the art of the possible. Tell us a little bit about that, what you mean by that. So the art of the possible says, how do we make what we think is a dream come true? Or, you know, how do we make things that we would like to have happen actually take form? And one of the things that I'm studying in trying to help companies to really do a step change on is the use of analytics and to break through some of the barriers. So one of the barriers is our data is not perfect, will never be perfect. Everybody's got master data issues, right? But machine learning and AI can help us with imperfect data. So let's move on. And, you know, the use of unstructured data, 80% of the data around an organization is unused because our systems can only use transactional data effectively. So how can we use unstructured data, streaming data, to really be able to sense because traditional supply chains respond? And then how can we basically have learning engines build rules-based ontologies and graph-based efforts to be able to have multiple Fs to multiple thens. So traditional models are single Fs to single thens, but they don't connect rules and policy very well. So what is the art of the possible? I think, you know, we we want to talk for a minute before we close on the future of supply chain, what you see as the future and what is possible. What is possible are learning supply chains that start with the customer's customer and the supplier's supplier. And we have this concept called bi-directional orchestration that lets us modify what we do in demand shaping, so price and portfolios, 
and modifies so that we can use the supply chain to test and learn so we can actively have statistical learning of market A versus market B and how we go to market or portfolio A versus portfolio B and allow us to manage complexity. So complexities like cholesterol, we have bad cholesterol and good cholesterol. And in the supply chain, we've let bad complexity drag us down without really having a governor. So my goal is to create outside-in processes using new forms of analytics that allow us to sense, to test and learn, to evolve and better manage complexity. Terrific. Okay. You and I have been toiling away for years and years in supply chain. And I used to tell people I was in supply chain and their eyes would glaze over. Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to get away from me, go get another drink or something. Right, like how Um, boring is that, right? Exactly. Uh, These days, it's hot, hot, hot and headline news for sure. So it's kind of fun to to be talking about these things in a more sophisticated way and one that's of more interest to the general public. Yes. So thank you so much for joining us today, Laura. It was really interesting to talk to you and a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Can you give us your contact information or where we can find your articles and your blogs so that if anybody's interested, they can go there? Yeah, so I am followed by about 325,000 people on LinkedIn. I post all my blogs there and you just link to me and I accept all invitations. I also write a blog called The Supply Chain Shaman. So you can go to that blog and sign up for the feed. I take all of the information from the reports and the post, and I publish an ebook every year that is available on Amazon. And it's also available on Flipping Book. And you can get those details on my website at supplychaininsights.com. And thank you for having me on your show. Oh, yes, it was it was really a pleasure. You can listen to more podcasts on Women in Manufacturing website, which is www.womenandmfg.com. And you can reach me, Rosemary Coates, at rcoates, R-C-O-A-T-E-S, at reshoringinstitute.org. And visit our website at www.reshoringinstitute.org, where we publish all of our research on manufacturing in America. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Thank you, Rosemary. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.